You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everyone. Peter Maravellis here on behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to another installment of City Lights Live, the virtual extension of our events calendar, where we continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love through readings, discussions, and forums. Tonight, City Lights, in conjunction with the MIT Press, celebrate the publication of More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech. It is, of course, published by the MIT Press, and we are delighted to have with us the, its author, Meredith Broussard. More Than a Glitch explores the idea of neutrality in tech as being a very badly mistaken assumption. The development and deployment of technology is riddled with algorithms that target and disfavor certain demographics, from facial recognition technology to mortgage approval algorithms that encourage discriminatory lending. Uh, technology ends up reinforcing inequality in many respects. Despite claims of good intentions and incidental errors, which the title of the book implies, technology continues to be coded with discriminatory undercurrents. So more than a glitch is a call for accountability and encourages us to educate ourselves and fight for building a more equitable future. Before we begin, I would like to take this moment to acknowledge that we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatish Ohlone peoples, AKA the San Francisco Bay Area. We would like to offer respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Meredith Broussard is a data scientist and one of the few black female researchers working in artificial intelligence. She is associate professor at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute of New York University and research director at the NYU Alliance for Public Interest Technology. She's the author of Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World, also put out by MIT Press. Her work has been featured in The New Yorker, The New York Times, BBC, Wired, and numerous other outlets. She appears in the 2020 documentary, Coded Bias, and serves on the advisory board for the Center for Critical Race and Digital Studies. So please join us now in offering a warm welcome to Meredith Broussard. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. Big fan of City Lights and really happy to be here. So what I'm gonna talk about today is I am going to tell you a little bit about the book. Uh, we're gonna talk about uh, AI in general, and uh, I'm gonna tell you a bunch of stories from the book. So let me, uh, let me just get my screen uh, going here. And then we will get started. All right, so uh, everybody see the screen and you're seeing my regular screen and not my presenter view is what I'm hoping. All right, uh, so we're talking today about more than a glitch. Uh, what's in the book? Well, first question, what the book does is it offers a hype free explanation of AI. We talk a lot about AI nowadays, uh, but I often uh, folks don't uh, are a little unclear 
on the realities of AI. So it's a hype-free explanation of what is really going on with AI. And then there are a lot of examples of how AI discriminates. I talk about examples from justice, medicine, education, and more. Uh, and then I offer some options for change. All right, so let's, uh, oh, you can also feel free to ask me during the Q&A about ChatGPT. Uh, I kind of wish ChatGPT had come out uh, about a year ago because then I could have put it into the book. Uh, and, uh, but I will point you back to the hype-free explanation of AI and we will talk about how ChatGPT really works. All right, so I wanna start by talking about the Terminator uh, because the Terminator is not AI. Uh, we have all of these uh, Hollywood uh, Hollywood images of AI, and it's very interesting that these exist because Hollywood is so good at storytelling that these images get really deeply lodged in our brains. So when you think about AI, it's quite likely that you think about the Terminator, you think about Ex Machina, you think about uh, her or Megan, uh, and those are really fun things to think about all of the imaginary stuff about AI apocalypses and uh, robot takeovers, super fun, but that is not really AI, okay? So let's separate what's imaginary and what's real. What's real about AI is that it's math. Uh, it's very complicated and beautiful math. And math is wonderful, but math is not going to uh, rise up and take over. There is no mathematical apocalypse coming. Right. And so what are computers? Well, computers are not sentient, uh, despite the name artificial intelligence, which suggests there's a little brain inside the computer. Uh, there is no sentience there. Uh, and computers are machines that do math. They literally com compute uh, and we do not need to be afraid of them. And what we should focus on uh, when we're talking about artificial intelligence is we should focus on present harms to real people because there are plenty of them. We do not need to dwell on imaginary future harms or imaginary uh, future scenarios because there are plenty of ways that AI is causing harm to real people right now. And so that's one of the things I talk about in the book. Uh, I talk about AI harms. I look at medicine, I look at education, I look at the criminal justice system and more. And like I said, there's also some solutions, right? The book is not entirely a bummer. A really important frame that I would offer to you is a frame that comes from Ruha Benjamin's book, Race After Technology. Uh, you'll see a lot of references to other people's work in this book. One of the things that I'm doing with More Than a Glitch is I'm collecting all of the amazing journalism and scholarship that's been done in the past few years in uh, what is broadly called critical technology studies. Uh, and I'm collecting it all and I'm lifting it up. Uh, so there are lots of resources for uh, what you might have you know, things you might want to read or watch or listen to that you might have missed the first time around. And what happens when you see all of these stories of AI harms all together is it hits differently. Uh, when you read about a facial recognition mismatch in the news every nine months to a year, you might think, oh yeah, that's happening every so often. 
Uh, but it's actually happening much more often than you might imagine. So when you look at all of these stories all together, uh, it brings uh, into relief the urgency of the situation. It makes you understand why these are not just blips, why they're not just glitches, why they're, syst- they're indicative of systemic issues inside artificial intelligence that need to be addressed now. And so, as I said, a really helpful frame for looking at AI is thinking about what Ruha Benjamin tells us, which is that AI discriminates by default. I really love this phrase. I found it so helpful in changing my thinking about what's going on inside AI systems. Because for a very long time, we've had this view that if we're doing something with technology, it must be good. Right. Uh, there is the uh, this kind of bias, this pro-technology bias, uh, which is a bias that I call techno-chauvinism, the idea that technological solutions are superior to others. And what I would argue instead is that we need to use the right tool for the task. And sometimes the right tool for the task is a computer. And sometimes it's something simple like a book in the hands of a child sitting on a parent's lap. One is not inherently better than the other. Uh, It's, again, the right tool for the task. And so we shouldn't take a techno-chauvinist look at technology. Uh, We should instead use Dr. Benjamin's frame that AI discriminates by default. And once we do that, it becomes easier to see where the problems are inside our algorithmic systems. So what do I mean when I say problems in algorithmic systems. Well, algorithmic systems, uh, I'm referring to machine learning systems, data-driven systems, uh, which are, again, real uh, AI. They are mathematical systems. So what's happening when we build a machine learning system uh, is basically the same process every time. And what happens is uh, you take a whole bunch of data and you plug it into the computer and you say, computer, uh, make me a model. And the computer says, okay. Uh, And so you've got just this tons and tons of data. You plug it into the computer, the computer makes a model. The model shows the mathematical patterns in the data. And then you can use the model to make new patterns, right? So what we, use it for is we use it in something like ChatGPT, for example. Uh, What ChatGPT is doing is uh, they've taken text scraped from the internet, you know, lots of wonderful stuff, lots of incredibly toxic stuff, put it into the computer, said, computer, make me a model. Computer said, okay. And then it can use that model to predict a new pattern. And the pattern is, the word that comes after a word, that comes after a word, when we put all of those words together, uh, they turn into sentences. You string together a bunch of sentences, they become paragraphs. So this is how ChatGPT works. Uh, It is not magic. It is not, uh, it is, is, will it change the world? Hmm. It'll change some things. Uh, It's not bringing about some kind of new era. Right. 
And so when we look at uh, the fact that these systems are created using data about the world as it is, we can also take our uh, sociological brands or our social sciences brands and predict that the social problems that are evident in the real world are also going to manifest inside the data that is used to train algorithmic systems. And the problems of the past are things like discrimination, racism, sexism, ableism, structural inequality. All of these things are replicated in AI systems because all of these things are reflected in the data. So let's look at some concrete examples of this. Uh, one really helpful example I find is an investigation by the markup uh, called the secret bias hidden in mortgage approval algorithms. So the markup looked at automated mortgage approval algorithms and found that these algorithms are 40 to 80% more likely to deny borrowers of color versus their white counterparts. And in some metro areas, that disparity is over 250%. Homeownership, of course, is a major way of building generational wealth. And so these algorithms, by denying borrowers of color access to, uh, access to mortgage funds, access to uh, homeownership, uh, they're perpetuating economic inequality. Now, the data scientist might look at this and say, well, the algorithms are just, uh, you know, are just being neutral, are being objective, are being unbiased. And the social scientist might look at this and say, well, this is actually an example of the algorithms perpetuating historical bias, right? So what do I mean? I'm so sorry, I have a terrible cold. Uh, so the way that uh, these algorithms are working is they're finding the patterns in the data. And what is the pattern that's articulated? Well, it's a pattern of bias. It's a, panel, a pattern of financial discrimination that's been perpetuated against people of color for decades in the United States. The United States has a long history of financial discrimination, of residential segregation, uh, of, uh, of just bad stuff in finance. And so the mortgage approval algorithms are picking up on that and they are uh, just repeating it. They're repeating the pattern. So it's not getting us to a world that's more just. The other example that I have uh, up on the screen here is the Gender Shades project. Uh, Gender Shades, uh, you may be familiar with it from the movie Coded Bias. Uh, you may be familiar with Joy Bolomini's work with the Algorithmic Justice League. Uh, Gender Shades was a paper that looked at uh, differential accuracy in facial recognition. What we have in the wake of Gender Shades, in the wake of the NIST uh, study on accuracy of facial recognition is we have the revolution that facial recognition works better on light skin than on darker skin. It works better on men than on women. Uh, it tends to not factor in trans and non-binary folks at all. And when we evaluate the intersectional accuracy of it, we discover that it works best of all on men with light skin and it works worst of all on women with dark skin. 
And so data scientists, again, might look at this and say, well, the problem is in the training data. Uh, the problem is likely that there aren't enough uh, people with varied skin tones in the training data set. And the way we should fix this is we should uh, increase the diversity of the faces in the training data set, and then we'll make the facial recognition more accurate. And that is absolutely true. That would work. Uh, but the abolitionist view says, listen, let's use this as an opportunity to think about what we're doing in the first place. And facial recognition is disproportionately weaponized against communities of color when it is used in policing. So actually the abolitionist solution to this problem is not to use facial recognition in policing at all, which I would argue is actually a better solution. Uh, the book does look at a number of examples of uh, ways that discrimination has played out in policing uh, and in criminal justice. And of course, this entire uh, field of algorithmic accountability reporting and fairness accountability and transparency in computer science and data science dates back to Julia Angwin's work at ProPublica. So Julia Angwin is the reporter who uh, broke the machine bias story. Uh, she investigated an algorithm called Compass that claimed to evaluate recidivism. Uh, and what she found in that investigation was that there's software used across the country to predict future criminals and it's biased against black people. Uh, this was a successor to work by Latanya Sweeney at Harvard about uh, differential search results uh, in Google for white people and for black people. Uh, and we also, uh, of course, see a connection to Safia Noble's work in Algorithms of Oppression about differential search, different search results in Google uh, for uh, the terms white girls and black girls. It used to be uh, that when you searched white girls, you got pictures of girls, and when you searched black girls, you got images of pornography. Uh, that has changed uh, to Google's credit. Um, not because they were proactive about uh, rooting out the uh, rooting out the problem, but because they were embarrassed uh, when Safia Noble's book came out and they read it and they changed it manually. But, so machine bias, uh, what happened here? The investigation happened uh, and an entirely new uh, form of journalism was named. That is algorithmic accountability reporting. There's a kind of data journalism. Data journalism is the practice of finding stories and numbers, using numbers to tell stories. And algorithmic accountability reporting is a kind of data journalism where we open up black boxes, we investigate black boxes. Uh, and sometimes we write our own code in order to uh, commit acts of investigative reporting. Now, traditionally, one of the functions of the press has been to hold power accountable. In algorithmic accountability reporting, we transfer that accountability function onto algorithms and their creators. So one of the powerful things that Julia Angwin did with this investigation is she released the data that she used in order to uh, investigate this phenomenon. Uh, she did this in order to increase transparency and allow people to 
do their own calculations uh, to validate her findings. And computer scientists were very excited to have that data uh, and uh, they are actually still using it uh, to this day. Uh, and it's also part of a larger movement toward uh, reproducibility in data science and also a movement toward reproducibility and transparency in journalism. Uh, another example that I write about in the book, uh, in addition to machine bias, uh, in addition to uh, looking at uh, the facial recognition uh, stories that you're probably familiar with, is I look at an example that Matt Stroud wrote about in The Verge, uh, in which Chicago's predictive policing program told a man he would be involved in a shooting but it couldn't determine which side of the gun he would be on. So what happened is a man is staying home in Chicago and there's a knock on his door and it's the police. And they say, well, uh, we, uh, you know, we used this algorithm. It says you're going to be involved in a shooting. We don't know if you're going to be shot or you're going to be the shooter, but it says shooting and you know, we're here to help. And he said, no, thank you. Uh, he said, I am not interested in your algorithm. I'm not interested in whatever you are offering. Uh, no, thank you. But uh, the police did not take no for an answer. Uh, they kept coming back. Uh, they would park outside his house. They offered to get him into uh, some program or other. They offered to help him uh, get a different job. They offered to... Uh, you know, to get him into uh, gun violence safety programs. And every time he said, no, thank you. He was not interested. But what happened is the police came around so much that the man got a reputation in the neighborhood for being a snitch because the police were always parked outside his house, right? And he was shot. Uh, he, he was shot for being, for being a snitch, which he wasn't, uh, and then he recovered, and then it happened again. So the police and their algorithm that identified him as uh, someone being involved in a shooting, police were actually the cause of the man being involved in a shooting twice. Right? So we have a lot of examples of this kind of failure of predictive policing technology. Uh, police tend to spend a ton of money on technologies that do not work very well, uh, do not work as claimed, and uh, that work in these destructive feedback loops where uh, they're fed, the algorithm is fed with data about uh, where crimes have occurred in the past, which by the way, is not actually data on where the crimes have occurred in the past, uh, but data on where arrests have been made, right? Certain neighborhoods are over-policed. Uh, and what happens is you have this data that shows uh, where arrests have been made, you feed it back into the predictive policing systems, and they predict where crime is going to happen in the future. Well, guess where they're going to predict that the crime is going to happen in the future? In the places where the crime has already happened, the places where the arrests have already happened. It's a really destructive feedback loop it's not getting us toward a better world. 
So we have all of these useful examples of uh, of AI harms from uh, from policing, from criminal justice. Uh, I want to talk now about an example of uh, kind of a step forward uh, that. I, again, I wish I'd come out a year ago because I could have written about it in my book, uh, but you can read about this in Wired. Uh, this came out a couple of weeks ago. This is an investigation by Wired and Lighthouse Reports, which is uh, a, an investigative shop out of Europe. Uh, it's called Suspicion Machines, and this is an investigation into a welfare surveillance algorithm that revealed discrimination. So in the city of Rotterdam, they tried to use an algorithm to detect welfare fraud. And I use heavy air quotes here uh, because anytime that people are trying to uh, trying to use algorithms in the context of uh, access to public services, uh, generally what they're doing, as we know from Virginia Eubanks' work, uh, generally, they're trying to restrict people's access to public services as opposed to expanding access. Right. So this algorithm that was used in Rotterdam uh, was attempting to detect welfare fraud, but actually it turns out that this algorithm was biased based on gender and ethnicity. And the predictor that it found that was strongest uh, for somebody who is likely to commit welfare fraud under its definition was somebody who uh, somebody who didn't speak Dutch very well. So in other words, it was targeting recent immigrants, uh, which is just horrific. To Rotterdam's eternal credit, uh, they realized that their algorithm was discriminatory and they stopped using it, uh, which is probably part of the reason that uh, Lighthouse Reports was able to get access to it. And so this report was really groundbreaking because what they managed to get access to was the code, the data, the model, and the documentation involved in this algorithmic system. So usually uh, you can get access to the data, but not the code or the model. Usually you can get access to the documentation, but maybe it's redacted or maybe there's you know some missing pieces. Uh, so this was just the whole package. And if you are interested in learning more about it, there is a 50 page methodology document that goes along with this investigation, uh, which to an algorithmic accountability reporter is super exciting. Uh, and if we have any academics listening, then uh, this is a great teaching, uh, a great teaching tool. Right. So that's algorithmic accountability reporting. Uh, let me talk a little bit about uh, disabilities. All right. We're going to uh, we're going to switch gears now, uh, and I want to talk about curb cuts. Uh, the book is about uh, looking at race, gender, and disability and their interact their intersections with technology. Uh, disability was the uh, was the component that I had learned the most about in researching the book. I felt like I had a good handle on race and gender, uh, but I had a lot to learn uh, with disability. And I'm really grateful to the scholars, the activists, uh, the folks who shared their stories with me and helped me learn. One of the important things that I learned was a concept called the curb cut effect. 
And I found this really helpful when thinking about designing for accessibility. Uh, the curb cut effect refers to uh, curb cuts, uh, which of course are the little parts of the sidewalk that dip down toward the street. And you have probably used a curb cut today. Uh, curb cuts were installed widely uh, as a result of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And they are not just good for people in wheelchairs. They're good for people who are using a variety of mobility aids. Uh, they're great for people who are pushing strollers. Uh, they're great for people making deliveries. Uh, they're great for people taking a bicycle up under the sidewalk, even though you're not supposed to take a bicycle up on the sidewalk. Uh, curb cuts benefit everybody. And so it's a great example of why when you design for accessibility, everybody benefits. So I find this a really useful frame uh, for thinking about uh, designing with technology. And so another important, uh, important point that I'd like to emphasize is that technology is great for accessibility and we should celebrate all of the wonderful advances that we have made that allow people with disabilities to uh, access the world uh, more effectively to participate uh, in things using technology. And we should not assume that because we have technology, we can just give somebody technology and that will be the end of our responsibility, right? There is not a one size fits all approach to disability and we should not uh, assume that because we have tech, uh, our responsibilities end, right? So let's go back to curb cuts for a second. Uh, and let's talk about robots. I have up on the screen a picture of a robot. Uh, this is one of the delivery robots uh, that I have seen all over the place in California. Uh, and when I first heard about these, like many people, I thought, oh, how fun. A little robot is gonna bring me a burrito and it's gonna be in the little compartment and it's driving itself and oh, that's so cute and fun. And yes, it is really cute and fun. Uh, and it is also dangerous. So there's a story in City Lab about uh, somebody who had a life-threatening encounter with one of these delivery robots. Because you know what is really convenient for delivery robots? Curb cuts, right? Curb cuts, also really useful for robots. Uh, and so this particular robot uh, was hanging out in the curb cut because the designers of the robot uh, you know, programmed it to go up to the edge of the curb. But somebody in a wheelchair was trying to cross the street and they were crossing a busy street, there were cars coming, the light was changing and the robot was blocking the curb cut. And so there's oncoming traffic. The person in the wheelchair could not get up onto the sidewalk because the robot was blocking the way. So the designers of the robot were not thinking about the humans who ought to have had priority on the sidewalk and they were hugging the space, right? Which brings us to another really important concept uh, when we are talking about designing for accessibility, which is the concept of the disability dongle. Uh, this is a, I, I, just, I, I really like this phrase. 
uh, because it encapsulates so many things for me. So a disability dongle is something that a designer thinks is going to be really helpful, uh, but actually is not. Uh, and a good example of this is the stair climbing wheelchair. I have a couple of pictures of, uh, of models up on the screen. And so designers uh, often come up with different designs for stair climbing wheelchairs. And they say, oh, isn't this so fantastic? This is going to uh, allow people in wheelchairs to get around the world so much more effectively. And if you ask somebody who uses a wheelchair, would you like a stair climbing wheelchair? Often they will say, no, I would like a ramp. I would like an elevator because that stair climbing wheelchair looks scary and I, I already have something that works really well, right? So we need to avoid uh, designing disability dongles. We need to avoid designing technology without input from people with disabilities. Uh, we need to stop assuming there's a one size fits all approach to disability. Uh, and we need to engage in more participatory design. Okay. Uh, I am running out of time. So I am going to skip over the, uh, the medical parts of the book. Uh, the quick version there is uh, I talk about medical racism. I talk about medical racism and the way that medical racism uh, interacts with technology in the way that uh, subtleties uh, and actually not so subtle things uh, in medicine get embedded in algorithmic systems. Uh, and obviously this is a problem. Right? So maybe you're a little, you're feeling like this is a little grim right now. I did promise you solutions. So this is the part where we talk about what can we do? You ready? All right, here's the number one thing you can do in the face of all of these AI harms, all of this discrimination, all of this bad stuff with technology, you can buy my book. There's two of them, you have options. The next thing you can do is you can emphasize narrative change. Uh, you can emphasize AI reality. Uh, so instead of uh, taking the techno chauvinist view, instead of pretending that uh, some imaginary, uh, you know, future, some imaginary sleek AI enabled future is out there. We can focus on what's real about AI right now uh, and focus on the actual harms and take action around it. How do we take action? Well, I think that part taking action uh, is building public interest technology. So that is exactly what it sounds like. It's about building technology in the public interest. Uh, and what you can do is you can pay attention to responsible AI principles and governance when building technology. Uh, there is an entire responsible tech community out there. Uh, I really like uh, the folks at All Tech is Human. Uh, they run a, uh, a really interesting Slack. Uh, in terms of AI ethics and governance, uh, I really like an organization called Equal AI. Uh, they do an educational curriculum and places like Salesforce and IBM uh, have been uh, investing in uh, responsible tech teams. Uh, I know that a couple of, uh, of big tech firms have laid off their responsible tech teams in the past few months. 
that was a terrible idea. Uh, and uh, just that was just a terrible idea. All right, so we can build public interest technology. Uh, algorithmic accountability reporters are public interest technologists. We can also look for human problems. Uh, if you are a data scientist or an engineer and you feel like you don't know enough about uh, human problems to be able to diagnose them, that's okay. You can collaborate with humanists and social scientists who are going to be more than happy to tell you about all of the many, many social problems out there. And uh, then you can collaborate and figure out how are these social problems going to manifest inside our AI systems. Because again, we have Ruha Benjamin's idea that these systems discriminate by default. Uh, if you start looking for social problems inside your algorithmic systems, you will find them, right? So you need to look. You can test technology for accessibility. And you are likely making technology that is not maximally accessible. Uh, and you can start to make it more accessible. It doesn't have to be perfect at first. Uh, you can start small and then get bigger. The important thing is that uh, is that you start, okay? And then algorithmic auditing uh, is a really fantastic innovation that I am very optimistic about. Uh, algorithmic auditing is the process of looking at an algorithm and evaluating it for bias. We have lots of interesting mathematical methods for this now. There is internal and external auditing. So internal auditing is what you do when you're inside a company, when you have access to uh, the training data, the model, the code, the documentation, all of the good stuff. And then external auditing is what journalists do. Uh, we look at algorithms from the outside, we look at the inputs, we look at the outputs, and then we uh, reverse engineer it and extrapolate uh, about what is happening inside. Um, these systems are easier than you'd think to reverse engineer. You can also learn from journalists on the algorithmic accountability beat. I mentioned the markup, I mentioned ProPublica. Also keep an eye on what's coming out of the New York Times and ICIJ. Uh, because I'm a professor, of course, I'm going to give you a reading list. Uh, and in the book, uh, I also encourage you to take a look at the bibliography, take a look at the acknowledgments, which also has a short reading list. Uh, here are a couple of options for things to read, watch, and learn. And look, here's another handful of resources about things to read, watch, and learn from. So. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, again, my book is More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech. Uh, and with that, I'm going to stop sharing, and we have time for some questions. Thank you so much for that. And if I may start while um, everyone's kind of gathering their thoughts, and, and um, please, please, please post them in the chat. Um, I'd like, since this is City Lights, um, I'd like to talk about narrative theory and AI. Scholars like Mary Laura Ryan have explored narratology in relation to AI. The idea is to generate new paradigms and, and interdisciplinary perspectives and literary theory. And, and for those of you in the audience, narratology is the study of narrative structure, just as you know. 
Um, Illicit is an AI-powered research assistant that some writers are looking at right now. What are your thoughts about the possibilities and the limits of, of such interaction? So I I really encourage everybody to uh, to use generative AI and uh, and try it out. I I love playing with technology. I've played with generative AI. It's extremely entertaining uh, for you know the first half an hour. After that, it gets pretty boring. I. Uh, you probably, most of you have read the uh, the Kevin Roos story in the New York Times about uh, when the uh, the Bing chatbot, the OpenAI chatbot, Sydney, uh, asked Kevin Roos to uh, leave his wife for uh, for the chatbot. The chatbot starts talking about how it dreams about being sentient. Uh, and lots of people have read that story and uh, and found it really spooky. They found it really eerie. I read that story. I was delighted by it, and I immediately recognized, oh yeah, uh, this uh, this text that the chatbot is spewing is just remnants of thousands and thousands of fan fiction stories about AI becoming sentient. Right? Like it was just. It was not eerie. It was. It was kind of sad. I uh, so I I think people should I uh, should use these systems, should learn about these systems, and should not be afraid of these systems. I uh, we should also be aware that they become mundane really quickly. So you have a lot of hype right now about the potential for generative AI, uh, how it's going to change everything. I uh, is it. Yeah, it's probably going to do less than you think. I I suspect that it's going to be useful for really mundane writing. Uh, the same way that autocomplete in Gmail is useful for mundane writing. Uh, if you are feeling lazy and uh, you know you just want to keep hitting like the hitting the tab complete in email for mundane communication, like yeah, it's fine. But when you're writing something that's important, you want to craft it yourself, right? So human ingenuity uh, goes into crafting some communications, and then other communications are mundane. And I think that's where AI is really going to be helpful. Let's see. Uh, Stephanie says, can you elaborate more on external algorithm analysis? I'd like to conduct an experiment on the role of algorithms and misogynistic beliefs and unsure of how to analyze algorithms without being inside the company. Oh, sure. Uh, all right, so there is a paper that just came out from Hugging Face uh, where they looked at uh, stereotypes in, uh, in ChatGPT and Dolly, I believe. So the easiest way to think about external auditing uh, is to think about using the technology and uh, and asking it questions uh, in a way designed to elicit responses that you suspect are problematic, right? So uh, if you know that, uh, a, or if you suspect 
that an algorithm discriminates based on gender, uh, you ask it, uh, you know, you show it two different users uh, or three different users or, you know, however many different users uh, with different genders and, uh, and you see what the results are. Uh, you know, ask, uh, ask Dali to give you a picture of a nurse and picture of a doctor and uh, see what the, uh, see what you get. Um, basically these uh, generative AI systems traffic in stereotypes. Uh, and I mean, all AI systems traffic in stereotypes, uh, but it's not hard to find the examples. Um, so another strategy is you can look at audits that have been done in the past uh, you can look at algorithmic accountability reporting that's been done in the past, and you can redo that type of analysis in a different system. One of the things that is uh, that is constantly interesting to me uh, in data journalism is the fact that data rarely uh, has the insights that you're looking for. Right. So we we kind of have this idea of the data driven world as being full of so many insights, uh, but it rarely has exactly what you're looking for. Uh, a friend of mine teaches first grade and he does this incredibly cute uh, activity with his first graders where every Monday, the first grade, there's a pair of first graders nominated and they have to go around with clipboard. Uh, making tally marks on the clipboard and they count the number of pockets in the room, which is the cutest thing you can possibly imagine, right? And like first graders, they love pockets. They think they're so interesting and they're like, oh, what's in your pocket? And they have all these like cute little conversations. It's just adorable, right? And they make tally marks on the clipboard and then they transfer the tally marks up to a poster on the wall and everybody can see a visual representation of you know how many pockets there are week by week. And this is data collection and the kids are learning data literacy. Great. Uh, but you can also see where the problems are in the system because the first graders are not great at the tally marks. The first graders are not really robust on their math and they tend to get distracted by talking about what's in their pockets and showing each other their, you know, their like fancy wood chips and whatever in their pockets. And so there are you know, there, there are just flaws in the system. So we have to think about every data-driven system as being, to some extent, created by first graders with clipboards making tally marks, right? Data-driven systems are constructed by humans. We know that humans make mistakes in recording things. We know that the way that you ask a question matters a lot for the answer that you get. And so we can't expect data to be flawless. We can't expect data to be absolutely accurate all the time. People would like you to think that it is, but it's just not, it's socially constructed. So uh, Shloka would like to see the second slide of the reading, listening and watching list again. Is that on your website or do you have a reading list on your website or anything? Uh, I do not know if I have a reading list on the website right now. It just got redone. Uh, 
but you know what I can do? I can uh, send it over to you and uh, you can put cool. it up on the social media page for City Lights. Cool. That'd be great. Yeah. So everybody, yeah. we will do that. Yeah. Oh, and you know what? We can even do it with links to purchase from City Lights. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. We'll do a Twitter thread or something. Great. Love it. Uh, okay. So let's see. Um, actually, Stephanie has a second part to the question. And what are your thoughts more so on the side of AI and gender discrimination? Mm, okay. There's a lot of it. That is my thought. Uh, in one of the chapters of the book, uh, I write about uh, the way that uh, that database systems uh, generally encode gender. Uh, and I do that uh, by looking at the work of a scholar named Mar Hicks. Uh, Mar Hicks wrote this really fantastic paper about Jonathan Ferguson, uh, who was a uh, transgender Brit in the 1950s, and Jonathan Ferguson uh, changed his uh, you know, changed his legal gender. Uh, and what it involved was uh, redoing a uh, redoing a card, right? And uh, it was interesting to me to think about. Uh, how at that point, uh, reissuing a card was in some ways easier than the process that folks have to go through today in order to change genders. Uh, and I started thinking about the way that 1950s uh, regressive social ideas about gender are included in computational systems and in database systems, right? So this has to do with kind of normative aesthetics in code. Uh, so for example, when I was taught to code in the 1990s, uh, I'm on the bleeding edge, by the way, people who have had the internet, who have had the web for their entire adult lives. Uh, I was taught that you had to make your programs really, really small because back then memory was expensive. And one of the ways that you made your programs really small was refactoring them and thinking about how much space each of your variables was going to take up. So a binary variable, a zero or one, takes up less space than a letter or a number, right? So uh, a word takes up this much space, you know, like a, a word might take up, a, I don't know if we're thinking inches, that's what, like six inches worth of space and the binary takes up like one inch of space. And so if you're optimizing for space, uh, you wanna use as small a variable as possible. And so I, gender was thought to be fixed. We know now that gender is not fixed. We know now that gender is a spectrum. We know that gender should be an editable field inside our computational systems. We know that that uh, editable field uh, should either be a dropdown with a number of options or should be free text entry or perhaps shouldn't be collected at all. And I, it should also be editable privately by the user. Uh, nobody should have to uh, call customer service and wrangle with them and justify uh, why they want to change their gender. Like that's, you know, that's terrible. Don't make people do that. Uh, but one of the reasons that uh, that people don't design computational systems this way 
is because of normative aesthetics in code, because people are still being taught, hey, represent gender as a binary. Uh, and that is part of the aesthetic of elegant code, right? Uh, it also has to do with legacy systems. Uh, people tend to think about computers as being super high-tech, up-to-date, and progressive. They're not a lot of the systems that we use were actually set up in the 1960s. Uh, so at universities, for example, universities were really early to hop on the digital wagon. And we set up these student information systems back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and they're these huge clunky systems. And guess what? Nobody has gone in and redesigned them from the ground up, right? So we are dealing with legacy systems here. When you inter you build new code to interface with legacy, with legacy systems, you have to do certain things to make the code work. And so if the legacy system has gender represented as a binary, then your new code is also going to have to send a binary back and forth because it's just expensive and complicated to update the old system. Like it's easier and cheaper to just write new code based on what's out there already, right? So it's not that I, we can't update our computational systems around gender, it's that people won't because they don't have the, uh, the will and they are not willing to invest in it. So I'm really pleased that my employer, NYU, has done a great job of updating its systems to uh, not only allow people to change their names, uh, but to it now dis the student information system now displays my students' pr preferred names to me, uh, not just their uh, you know not just their government names, uh, and it displays uh, their uh, their pronouns, um, and you can also uh, and this is consistent across all of the systems now. It used to be that. Like even if your uh, even if your gender was updated on the uh, site that your professor could see, like if you went to the dentist, like the dentist wouldn't have the wouldn't have the update. So that has all been ironed out now, uh, and so it's a it's a matter of funding and uh, and will. Uh, so it's very interesting to me that we are living with the legacy of 1950s ideas about gender. Uh, and we don't have to be. Uh, so that is, uh, I don't know, that's one of my thoughts about AI and gender discrimination. Well, we find ourselves at the top of the hour. Meredith Broussard, I'd like to thank you for gracing our virtual halls tonight and for the good work that you do. It has been a pleasure having you with us. I also want to thank all of you in the audience for joining us. We have posted links with which you may purchase books. And City Lights has a very substantial selection of books about technology in relation to civil rights. If you are in the hood, please do come on down, pay us a visit, browse our stacks. We are located in San Francisco's historic North Beach District. We're open seven days a week, Monday through Thursday, 11 to 8, and then Friday through Sunday, 11 to 9. We are slowly getting back to our pre-pandemic hours. Tonight's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, our publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, 
writers and independent thinkers. So good night, everyone. Please take care. We hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.